This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Later this week, Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg is expected to testify at the US Senate committee hearing on the use and protection of user data. It'll be his first time before a Senate committee and it comes after Facebook admitted 87 million odd of its users may have had their data accessed in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Tim Norton is chair of Digital Rights Watch and has some tips for how we can better protect ourselves online and... um, I think uh, it came home to me, Tim, recently when a friend asked on Facebook, um, you know, who filled out one of those surveys? <laughs> and I suppose, is it true today we're going to find out who in Australia is affected by this um, uh, scandal? Uh, who in Australia? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've found out some of that in terms of we know um, a vague idea about how many people in Australia were affected. Um, but I think the issue is that it doesn't matter where you are, you know, you're going to be affected by this in some way. Whether you've um, gone and filled out the survey partic- you know, specifically and given your data or we're all on Facebook. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who isn't these days. And by that very engagement, you have given over some sort of data. Whether or not that ended up in the hands of Steve Bannon and the Cambridge Analytica crew doesn't really matter because the issue here is that Facebook as an entity has been given access, giving access to that data to a whole range of third parties for years. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that with social media platforms such as Facebook and others as well, people voluntarily offer up a whole lot of personal information about themselves, their private lives and so on. But it feels like with this latest Cambridge Analytica scandal that kind of it could be a bit of a game changer. It seems like it's making people second guess what they put out there, knowing what potentially that information is used for. Yeah, and it's been one of those things that we've been trying to struggle, uh, my organisation has been trying to struggle to find a way to educate people about what is this new dynamic that we're entering into. We're all very aware and understanding of a monetary transaction. We know that if we give money, we get a service or we get a good. And that's something we've had for, you know, generations for eons. We're entering into a new um, idea where we're giving over something which is personal data and in return we get a service. It's a service we want. We want to use Facebook. We want to have it because our friends are there. The information is there. It's easy to use. It's a good thing for us to do. But I don't think myself included and anyone has really been aware of what are you actually giving up as a transaction in that process. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those hor- you know, really hard things to communicate is that we actually need a, a new understanding of what that transaction is. And part of that needs to have an equality of data. We need to have users who actually understand this is who I am online, this is what I'm willing to give to Mark Zuckerberg, and this is what he will give me in return. I'm okay with that transaction, I'll enter it. Now, what's happened to date has been horribly skewed. Most people have just been gone, I'm not giving anything over, it's fine. Oh, look, I'm getting a free service. That's false. Mm. Um, now, my hope is that this kind of scandal will actually force people to really you know, look back at it and go, well, hang on, it's heavily weighted towards benefiting him and his organisation. How do I redress that balance? And it's about consent. It's about informed consent. And I think it's also about it has to come with a... a, a different weighting towards the user. Right now, the option you're given with most services is this massive long list of terms and conditions and you either agree or you do not. There's a couple of examples in in law where people have actually been a bit cheeky and rewritten the terms and conditions and sent them back and the company has just accepted them and that's all well and good and it's quite funny to watch. But the, the, the usual way of doing it is you either accept these horrible terms or you do not. Um, 
And what we need is to shift the power dynamics so that users have the ability to say, well, no, no, hang on. We need an understanding that Facebook looks at it and says, this is Tim Norton's data and this is what he owns. And he has allowed us to give us, give us access to this, this and this. So we'll use that. And in return, we'll give him this, this and this. If they want to bargain and say you only get X amount of Facebook's, um, you know, usability as a result, fine. We want that sort of back and forth bargaining. Do you think uh, Mark Zuckerberg is going to be asked about this in front of the Senate committee? I think it's like the day after tomorrow. I think he's going to be asked about what onus of responsibility his own organisation has. That's going to be the prime thing. Um, and that will be the first time that he's actually been called to account on it at least in a um, in a Senate committee sort of forum. And I think that's an important one for him and his organisation to really start to look at. Up until now, because it's a new era, because it's a new style of how you engage with users, there are no rules around this. Mm-hmm. And so they've just been allowed to sort of steam ahead into this new area and kind of make it up as they go along. A scandal like this makes them stop and have to actually be held accountable for what is it that they're actually controlling. Now, the fact that I don't believe that anyone at Facebook was actually uh, willingly trying to seek an election outcome. They're not willingly trying to get Russian agents to come in and do these things. But they're still complicit in that process by allowing such a massive data trove to happen. So I think the question is, at what point is there onus of responsibility on hoovering up all this data and then what is it, what's done with it? And Mark Zuckerberg said that he's kind of okay with some form of, of regulation, but how, how would we begin to nut out regulation that would, that would be enforceable? Because obviously Facebook has users all over the world um, operating and living in different legal jurisdictions. How, how can we regulate this space? I think it's, you're right, he has actually said that he's completely okay with the form of regulation. He wants the conversation about what is the most appropriate regulation. Um, it's difficult because it is multi-jurisdictional. Um, there are examples where the European Union, for example, has managed to sort of go through this very messy legal area about how you actually get different laws that affect different people um, in different countries. But I think the main thing is less about the legalities of what they're being held accountable to and more the conversation that they're having with their users. You've already seen since the Cambridge Analytica story hit, Facebook have definitely clawed back a bit. They've, they've you know, really gone forward and said, um, here are your privacy rules. Here's what you are in charge of. We are changing the system. Um, when they first found out that their data was being used nefariously back in 2015, they did actually you know, immediately change the rules. So from that point on, no third party could get access to that huge trove of data. The fact that they didn't actually go public at the time is a bit curious. Mm. <laughs> um, but they, they are trying to mitigate some of the fallout, but it's coming from a PR point of view. How can they make sure that their name is not being dragged through the mud? What we need to go is the next step of actually how can they do best by their users? And that's going to be a conversation less about the legalities and more about an onus of um, privacy rights. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, I've heard a lot of people talking about once once it's sort of uncool or, or uh, a, a bad place to work at Facebook and they don't, they can't attract the kinds of staff they've been able to to date, that's when things start to change for them when yeah. people don't want to use the platform or we've heard a lot of high profile people deleting their facebook platform there's lots of help guides online for how you can do that and you know how difficult it can actually be and how to get your photos off it and all this sort of stuff so do we know how many people 
have actually started to delete accounts, Instagram accounts, Facebook accounts. I'm not sure, but I think you're right. It's about the sort of um, showing that there is a willingness of people to push back. You know, we all know that marching down Swanson Street is not going to change our immigration laws, but it sends a strong message. And that combined with private lobbying of government and with changes within the party systems and all of these things come together to mean that, you know, in 20 years' time we look back and say, oh, well, that's the point we changed our mind. There wasn't any one thing. And I saw recently that um, I think it was about 4,000 Google employees signed an open letter saying they did not want Google to be engaged in Department of Defence contracts. That's Google employees saying, whoa, we're supposed to do no harm. That's a core principle of Google. That's impossible if we're actually building AI systems for the Department of Defence. So we don't want it to happen. Now, whether or not that mobilisation of Google employees will force the management to change or not, it sends a really strong message that something's not right here. Now, that combined with public outcry, with the media push on it, with all these things, hopefully will actually change. And that's what I'm hoping with the Facebook as well. Yeah, and the spotlight's been very much on Facebook after in the aftermath of this Cambridge Analytica revelations. But, of course, there's many online sites and, and companies and so on that track our online activity with a view to, to targeting ads and, and that sort of thing. So it's a much bigger issue that we're confronting right now. Yeah, it is. I mean, and this is where we're entering into a new, well, we're entering, we have been operating in a very new world um, where it's very much an it's easier, easier to profile someone. It's easier to target them. Um, and you only need to look at Australia's um, own political parties as to how they do this. Um, we're quite unique in the world in that we actually um, make our political parties and MPs exempt from the Privacy Act. Um, so they can do whatever they want. They don't actually have to respect the individual privacy of, of citizens. Um, they will to the point that they know that the, how much they can get away with. And so, you know, pushing it to the nth degree of how much before people will start to push back. Um, but that profiling in the past was, you know, your local MP would drop something in your letterbox saying how great they were and how this is what they will do for you, please vote for me. Well, now they're targeting you on Facebook based on a specific profile of all of your online activity to try and get the message that they think will be most relevant to convince you to vote for them. The Cambridge Analytica story went one further and actually manipulated people. It actually gave them false information based on what they thought they wanted to hear to seek an outcome. Now, we're not at that stage, and I don't believe any political party's done that here in Australia, but it's an example of how the power of data and the power of what data you can actually glean from people's social media profiles when they willingly give over huge amounts of their personal information, just how it can be used. And Tim Norton's chair of Digital Rights Watch and uh, we're speaking about our digital rights and I suppose how would you characterise them? Do we have more rights online than we have in kind of the non-online world or do you even make a distinction or what, how do you sort of view it? No, I mean, we try and... Part of the reason we set up Digital Rights Watch a couple of years back um, with a very specific focus, which was to take human rights and put them online um, and take the idea and the principles of human rights and put them into a digital world. I think that's a really important principle that we need to um, take to heart because in the past we've always seen our online persona as something we play with, something we create, something we craft. That's no longer the case. It's actually a part of us. And it's a part of how we interact with the world. Whether you have a direct correlation of this is me and this is how I promote it online, or if you actually have two. If you have an online world that you engage in through fantasy worlds or through an alternate persona um, that's different to your real life, it doesn't really matter. You have the same right to privacy, freedom of expression, um, and the other rights that are inherent. Problem is, in Australia, we actually have no rights. 
we have no Bill of Rights and most of our rights are by precedent only. And so I think we do need to go back a step and take it out of the digital sphere and just say, what are our human rights? And then how are they protected online and offline in equal force? Yeah, which is a very big consideration. Yeah. And, I mean, given all, all that's, that's happened um, over the past few months, a lot of people would be really concerned about the way their data is being used online and, and harvested by third parties, potentially. What kind of things or measures can people take to ensure that their privacy is, is maintained as best as it could be? Um, it's a hard one because, as I said, you know, when you enter into these debates, uh, into these uh, arrangements with social media, you are automatically, you know, giving over your ability to kind of um, bargain with them. But I think more and more as this scandal has hit, people are now sort of realising, well, hang on, how much how much control do I have? Um, with the Facebook example, um, we did a bit of research because it's the, yes, that's the question we keep on getting asked mm-hmm. is what can people actually do? Um, and there's a couple of things that you can actually do within Facebook's structure. You can opt out of advertising targeting. That is a thing that is very hidden, um, but you can find it. And that means that if people are going to, you know, target you based on something in your profile, you can just say, don't. Like, just don't. <laughs> I want out of that. Um, you can delete as much of the personal information as possible. Don't put your hometown in because that hometown will target you down to location. Um, don't put location sharing on your apps. Um, take away as much of these uh, in- indicators of your own personal information because by that you're taking away all those data points that you can be targeted but don't with. they keep them could you delete them but they're still there this is the question <laughs> <laughs> so i mean as far as we know yes if you've already put it in there then it will have been kept and it will have been used at some point um the the trust is that if you do delete it then it is deleted um, and there has been some work in this area again in the eu where they actually put in place the the right to deletion which is a oversimplification of what the law actually allows but it was based on a, on a French case where someone actually said how Google have listed me is not fair, that is not who I am and it has put me at risk in this specific case and so they went and took it all the way to the European courts and just said I have a right to be deleted when I don't want to be represented that way and they won now, that precedent allows people to go to Google and say, you have me here, I want this information deleted, I want it actually deleted. Um, so, yes, in theory, we should be able to trust this is happening. But I think you're right. I mean, if in the, in the benefit of hindsight, being able to go back and just say, I'm going to log into Facebook, I'll give you an email address, that's all. Well, I, um, I've, I interrupted your flow. So we, we can opt out of ad targeting, we can turn off our location sharing. What else can we do? <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, we, we put together a bit of a um, overview for people if they wanted to look at this sort of list. So if you if you have um, listeners who want to go to digitalrightswatch.org.au, there actually is a bit of an overview of, mm. of the steps. Um, and some of them are actually quite useful in that um, Mozilla, the people who make Firefox. I was going to ask about that because I, I did notice that they've put um, a, a new browser with a with an ending on it and you can actually stop it. It'll, it'll prevent you being tracked. Is that sort of how it so works? It's basically or? a plug-in for Firefox that isolates Facebook. So one of the problems that you have um, how much information you give to Facebook and that's as we've been talking about what information you give over in the certain sections of Facebook and the more you upload the more they can target you and, and build a profile. Facebook went nuclear a couple of years ago when they um, invented the Facebook advertising and Facebook Pixel 
And what that does is it actually bleeds Facebook out into other websites. Um, any website where you log in via Facebook, you're automatically giving any information on that website into Facebook as well. So if you log into Etsy um, via Facebook, it'll know that you're looking for, you know, cute little dwarf figurines. That's what you're into. That's added to your Facebook profile. So don't log in via Facebook. But with the Firefox plugin, what it does is if you log into Facebook and then you log into Etsy, it'll isolate the two and never link them. And that's a really important step to actually break that kind of um, octopus model that they've got in effect. Yeah, and I, I actually um, saw that um, Firefox had done that and um, downloaded, updated my app on my phone, and then it said, oh, we don't, we, we're not providing this on Android phone yet. Um, but do you think, <laughs> which I was, damn it, but do you think that we'll start to see more of this kind of thing happening from, from kind of these more open source type browsers like Firefox? Yeah, definitely. Um, and an equivalent organization to us, the Electronic Frontiers Foundation um, in the US um, invented quite a while ago, they invented um, the Privacy Badger, um, which is an adorable little badger. Um, but it's basically a plugin that does this for all things. It does it for any website that tracks or has cookies or has pixels or does any kind of tracking at all. Um, it's unfortunate that what in that in that dynamic what you're doing is you have an informed user who says, hang on, I'm not cool with this. I'll go and get a tool to protect myself. We shouldn't have to get to that stage. We should be able to push Facebook and say, you can't do that. You can't track us when we're all over on this side of the web and then bring it into your data domain and then use it to profile us. We don't want that. But that's where we are. I was so. going to ask about that onus being on the individual to protect themselves because many people opt to, to pay you know, a relatively small sum of money for a virtual private network, for example, which gives them some anonymity online. Are there any moves to, to monetize these privacy options, either either within Facebook or, or further abroad? It's a good question. I think they'd get a lot of pushback if they tried. Um, and yes, you're right, you can actually sort of pay for these services that protect you. Um, but I think that's what people are uh, being pushed to have to do. Mm. Um, so if that's what they have to do to actually protect themselves, um, that's what we encourage. You know, you should be doing whatever you can within your own control to protect yourself. But at the same time, not give up on pushing back on the people who are creating that environment in the first place. And that is the social networks as well as the government agencies that are not regulating in these areas. Um, we're suddenly seeing the Australian government um, jump on this and actually say, hang on, maybe we need some regulations here. Like, great that would have been good if you listened to us a couple of years ago um but if they do that and they actually step in and again we'll have that multi-prong approach we'll have you know individual users going uh, i'm not cool with this or i'm, I'm going to leave if you don't change it you have governments saying you can't operate in our jurisdiction without these rules and we'll slowly see them actually pushed into a corner where they have to act do you think uh, as users of of the internet and of these various apps and and um social media platforms that we have been too trusting to date tim I don't know if I'd put that that responsibility back on the user, though. I think it's been uh, a journey of a new world and a new engagement with these services. And so it's not naivety when you're still trying to work out what is your role and how do you work with I suppose them. I don't mean naivety so much as that, that, that sense that we are somehow protected and how, how bad can it be? I mean, these, you know, these platforms are used by millions and millions of people can't be that bad that sort of sense do you think that's like maybe this is a wake-up call no i think i think it's a wake-up call definitely um but if you look at my own example um i joined most of these social networks when they weren't millions of people when they were still sort of burgeoning things because it was my speciality and my sort of work 
and what I was doing. Um, and as I as it grew and it grew, no one could have predicted that it would grow to the power that it did. I think you know I remember Facebook pre advertising network. Um, I remember it when it was this really bad user experience with very clunky things and and they were working it out just as much as we were working out how to use it you know and a new feature would be added and we'd be like oh look we can do polls and then they would take polls away because they realized they could monetize it like oh the polls are gone um and it's back and forth which is healthy it's actually how you create new technology the problem comes when you actually just push aside the user and say hang on this is what the best interest of the company is and that's where you know if you look at twitter versus facebook and how facebook have grown to the scale where they're just building an empire to sell product which is us to an advertiser now twitter does that but it hasn't done it to the same scale it probably would have had we not had this sort of scandal. So it's a good example of how these things build over time. And just as much as we as users have to come to terms with how we're using it, so do the organisations have to come to terms with their own responsibilities. And um, just, you know, I think we've kept you too long already, but what about, uh, you know, a lot of young people aren't using Facebook. There's other social media platforms out there. And I suppose uh, what about the, the rights of children online? Uh, do they differ in any way from the rights of, of adults? No, I think I think it's an important one to keep into a, um, in mind. Um, in terms of how children use digital platforms, we have to take into account an extra responsibility. Um, there has to be a sort of you know an adult supervision of that, not direct supervision, but someone taking responsibility for that as they learn how to use it. Um, there's a great report that UNICEF put out last year, which was the I'm going to get the name wrong, but basically it was looking at um, children's rights in a digital environment, um, and a fantastic. Um, researcher called Amanda Third at the University of Western Sydney, who's done a lot of work into this area. Um, and it's an interesting one because you're sort of at the intersection of, of a new technology in the digital rights sphere, along with a very old area, which is children's rights. And how do you have that balance of giving them freedom while also keeping them protected? I think it's an interesting one. The one thing that I always notice that people do is always um, jump, I'm not saying you're doing this, but people always jump to the idea that children need to be more protected than adults. And I actually think children are more aware of what engagement or what transaction they're entering into than we are. They were born as digital natives. You know, I, I got a computer when I was... 16. Now, my son, who's eight, grew up, he doesn't know what a non-touch screen is. Mm. Yeah, so, well, I suppose I ask it because we do have different rights in the offline world for children versus adults. So, yeah, just an interesting area. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, Tim Norton, Chair of Digital Rights Watch, and if you want to follow up on any of these topics, um, you can head to their website and they've got a sort of a, a, a help sheet or forum there that you can um, have a look at how you can protect yourself online and uh, we'll all be watching Mark Zuckerberg speak to the Senate later in the well, week or Senate yep. Senate Committee. <laughs> Thanks for coming Thanks, in. Tim. Thank you. And we've got Kim Salmon here in the studio with us this morning. He's here um, to chat about an upcoming benefit at the Prince Band Room this coming Friday night for Brian Hooper, who's uh, very sadly been diagnosed with incurable lung cancer. And uh, Hooper played bass with the Beast of Bourbon and also Kim Salmon and others as well. And there's a whole amazing lineup of artists who have come together to help raise money for him, including the Beast of Bourbon themselves, Gareth Lydiard, Mick Harvey, Adelita, Rosie Westbrook and Six Foot Hick as well. Kim, welcome to Triple. Thank you. It'd be, uh, it's kind of been nice to speak to you in happier circumstances, I guess, but it is really a positive thing that so many people have, have come together for, for Brian at this time. Yeah, it is. It's very heartening. Um, I hope we can do some sort of good there. 
Yeah, and it's it's it happens quite often in the the music industry or the music scene, I should say, in in Melbourne with musicians banding together to to help people out, whether it's a, a broader cause or for individuals. In in this case, well, yeah, there was a big one for Spencer Jones um, a year or two ago, um, and I, I couldn't make that one. Unfortunately, I was um, out of the state. Um, Sad not to be able to do it, but uh, that was apparently hugely successful, and that that set some parameters for this one too, because um, that one went all day apparently, and it was kind of like Spencer <laughs> was uh, barely able to stand at the end of the thing. And um, I think they realised they're going to, uh, you know, to may, maybe it's just an evening affair, and people won't be playing hour-long sets and things like that. Yeah, so, need to rein it in a bit. Yes. <laughs> so will Brian Hooper be playing? He assures me he will be. I don't know if I should give anything away. <laughs> oh, well, hang on. I better not ask anything else know. about the gig. Um, well, he, he's got... Um, yeah, yeah he, he says he's going to... He's got uh, an understudy. He's got staff there to take care of it. Um, yep. Yeah, so um, be, be ready for a spectacle. Yeah, in the best possible sense of the word. <laughs> and I mean, his you, you've played with with Brian um, as part of the Surrealists and, and the Beasts of Bourbon as well. You met over in Perth in the the eighties, is that right? Well, Just yeah, we're where? both Perth boys. We we from a suburb apart, really. He's a Bazo boy, and um, I'm from a place that nobody's ever heard of called Embleton. But that I, I say I'm a Morley boy. Um, because people know what that means. <laughs> he wouldn't know. No, I don't know. <laughs> I, no, I'm just laughing, pretending I do, but I actually don't I'll know either. Know you, I'll forever <laughs> know you were the Morley boy. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we... Um, he, I, he came to my attention as uh, in the punk scene when um, around the time I think the scientists were giving up in disgust and there was a new kind of wave of young... Turks, <laughs> uh, new, new kind of punks kind of appearing around a lot and he was part of that new brigade and um, I kind of uh, immersed in myself in the new culture because I sort of thought, oh, bugger it. <laughs> uh, and I, I met him in a band called Modern Wimps. They were, I saw him in a band called Modern Wimps and um, it was just funny. We, um, I was about to head over to reform the scientists in Sydney and I struck up a friendship with Brian and... Uh, Tony Polar and um, we all, they all, we all went in my car over to Sydney. We went to the we came here to the Eastern States as we call it <laughs> in Perth. So this mystical place, the Eastern <laughs> States. So we went on a big odyssey then and have have been on many <laughs> since. Yeah, and, and that came after you'd been touring quite extensively with the scientists throughout the eighties. This was after that period. Oh, it was. Um, Really, that was in the late 70s that I'm talking mm, about when the first right. version of The Scientist, the Mark I version, which was sort of power pop band, we, we disbanded. And then uh, when I moved to Sydney sort of for the early 80s, that's when Brian and I got to know each other. And then he kept on showing up around the scene wherever I was. So it was in Sydney. And then I, we saw him in London when The Scientist relocated there and he could always be relied upon to get into a fight with one of fans or spit on somebody <laughs> who's true to his cause, the cause of punk rock, uh, always. Um, and uh, we, we uh, would catch up um, quite a bit, so it was just, he was always around. So um, when I finally found myself back in Perth and having to get a real job, 
uh, I still kept this idea of music kind of I burned a flame for it and I I sought Brian out found that he'd come back to Perth and I said Brian I've got this idea for this band and uh, I kind of what do you call it indoctrinated him I told him all these ideas that I had and he had a few of his own I found um, too but um, I, I wanted a name for the thing and he actually suggested that because he knew I had a, an idea called Kim Salmon and the Surrealists. He was the one that suggested that I use that one. Um, so he, he liked that. So we did that. And um, then we found that our friend Tony Polo wanted in on this thing as well. So um, it just happened basically after Brian was au fait with it all. I'd trained him. But he, um, you know, that, that uh, song he played earlier, he's playing... He's a bass. He's playing guitar on that one. He, right. He, he was actually, I think, guitar was his first love. <laughs> I made him play the bass, and <laughs> that's what he's known as, unfortunately for him. But it was all you're doing. <laughs> yeah, but he's actually a very uh, skilled guitarist and um, songwriter, and um, uh, he does pretty much anything. Mm. Yeah. So how how did that project, I guess, that Kim Summerlin's Surrealist, differ from what you'd been doing previously? Was there something you you all kind of really wanted to to play around with or or get out of that that group? Um, I look. I had a few kind of ideas that were continued from the scientists, and Brian was ready to take them on board, um, and it was just a funny. It was a great time, actually. We made three albums basically that, that were all just cobbled together out of nothing like uh i would um do shows with the beasts of bourbon i'd travel to melbourne or sydney or wherever they were and i'd kind of get on the phone to the guys because they it, it it transpired very quickly that we were all dispersed tony would be in sydney or brian would be in melbourne or vice versa and i was back over in perth still I'd just get on the phone because that's how we communicated in those days, and uh, and none of us were good letter writers. <laughs> we were poor <laughs> correspondents, so we'd get on the phone and um, organise some little shows around the place, and then whip into a studio. So we did hit me with the surreal feel, uh, essence, and just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. All of them were done on the fly in, in moments just. Stolen from the Beast Suburban. Wow, just in the studio and just smashed yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah, we just smashed it out. I'd, I'd always have a bunch of stuff, but Brian would be, always be relied upon to bring a riff to the the proceedings. So the riff, uh, the song Melt, on the, just because you can't see it, it's Brian's, and um, I think uh, he did, he contributed a, a, an awful lot more than just, you know, being, he, he wasn't a side man. He was, mm. he was you know, <laughs> he was always uh, a, fo- a focal point. Uh, if, as any of the press shots are testimony to because it was <laughs> I had to make the comment that <laughs> if you want to take the focus away from yourself from the if you, from the camera's eye you just get Hooper in your band because <laughs> <laughs> he was something of a a rock star <laughs> absolutely it's it's interesting that I mean that those still is I got it yeah and we'll be doing doing yeah. well, I don't know if we can say whether or not he will be there this Friday. We have said he he will be there at the benefit this coming Friday. Um, th- those albums you mentioned, they have that very kind of raw energy to them that feels like, um, in a way, needed to be recorded in in that way. Done, oh, absolutely. Done very that was the, in the room. that was the modus operandi of the surrealists anyway, and and our philosophy. It was about salvaging what you can out of 
whatever situation you've been thrown into out of the free fall that you're in mm. that was very much our thing and throwing in the odd cover as well in blue velvets on that oh we always had those that, that's that was from the word go we had a, a bunch of covers there was some that never made it never got the imprint made on you know the magnetic imprint they unfortunately we did a version of t-rex's jewel there was um there was a version of peggy lee's is that all there is floating around forever but that we never got recorded um until spencer jones and i had to go at it on the runaways lp mm. but uh, there was a lot of stuff we had we just it was a bit um I, I kind of got a lot of ideas from Tav Falco's Panther Burns kind of thing, their shtick, um, and, and applied it to what we were doing. So there's quite a few things. Uh, Lee Hazelwood was always a good person to cover his material. So there's Absolutely. a lot of Lee Hazelwood in, in the surrealists. <laughs> so is everybody sort of flying in from all over for this gig on Friday night or are people a bit living a bit closer together these days? Oh, um, well, um, Tex Perkins will be flying in. I'm sure um i think he might be doing um his um a johnny cash kind of theater thing at the moment so he'll be taking a night off that so i'm not sure where that is um but uh and i don't know where the whereabouts of most of the people so uh, <laughs> gareth lydiard that well that's he, he lives up up bush doesn't he so um but he could be anywhere could be so, anywhere oh yeah <laughs> They'll be travelling. There'll be lots of travelling done to get there. Well, I mean, and you've also got a, a Perth iteration of this, uh, yeah, as well. Yes. Well, um, yeah, yeah. I've got a, a, I've got a band in 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 Perth. I've got one in most states now, and I've got one in Paris as well. So I've got people <laughs> stationed. Just they don't do anything else in their lives. They just wait for me. <laughs> just waiting for you to turn up. <laughs> yeah, and that makes it all the more special. Well, that's good. Abandon every town. <laughs> yeah. So, did you say abandon every town? It's abandon every town. Abandon every town. <laughs> <or> abandon. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying? I've abandoned the idea of taking bands to towns. Mm. So I have abandoned every town. <laughs> oh, brother. Um, yes, I've got. Um, uh, Pete Stone and Todd Pickett, who's, they just sound like, um, side musos, don't they, with names like that? They should, they should be in Memphis or something. <laughs> I thought it sounds like they should run a hardware chain or something. That too. They'd, they'd need a sideline. <laughs> They're going to be waiting around for me to be giving them a gig. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, um, I've got Pete and Todd over there, and I'm also going to get James Baker to do a sort of a garage rock duo type thing, um, and we'll do a bunch of scientist tunes, and we're calling ourselves the Teenage Dreamers for Great. that one, so that's, uh, yeah, so um, I'll be flying in for that one, I will, be, I will be using an airplane for that, so I can testify to yeah. that <laughs> <laughs> and with with these shows i mean how does it go when you're on a bill with a lot of other musicians who i imagine some of them might be kind of covering material from from beast of bourbon and, and the well i'm gonna have a big stoush with tex perkins about dropout because that's ours <laughs> well that's right how do you negotiate what you're gonna, no, the what beast, you're gonna play the, the beast it's the beast it's a beast of bourbon song i think you can own a song without writing it mm. um it's just uh, the scientists did originally do it but um I wouldn't be daring to um, <laughs> stake that one out on Friday. But it'll be performed. But that's what you're asking. Other. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, if they don't do it, I'll 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 do it. Let's get in first. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, the the beasts will be playing earlier. 
um, ah, right. because Brian needs to be sort of, you know, match fit for it. And the longer the night goes on, you know, it's you've got to take that into consideration. So um, they will be playing earlier, and um, unfortunately, the scientists will be having to play the the graveyard shift. <laughs> I was going to say be the headliners, but. It's, yeah, it's a bit of sweet sometimes. You got to stick around yeah. later. You got to, you know. You no, no, fresh to, I'll be there. I'll be there till God knows. I'll be there for the for, for good. It is St Kilda. It is her. The side. It's a bit St Kilda. Yeah, <laughs> and it'll be a great vibe at that time of night as well. Yeah, yeah. It'll be really old school St Kilda. I think. Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, you've um, always up to a lot of different things with the kind of various acts you play with, and and so on. Have you got any shows coming up this year or, or tours in the works? Mm. Uh, I'm touring with the scientists uh, in in Europe um, in June, and um, actually doing the Axman's jazz lineup of the Beasts of Bourbon in Spain in that trip. Great, uh, just for a one-off show, um, and I'm taking the scientists to um, USA in September October for a couple of weeks. And we've got, we've got, we've got a sing, couple of singles coming out, actually, the scientists. So oh, fantastic. We're doing that mini, 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 mini thing that, uh, we put out online last year's coming out on Bang Records to coincide with the European thing. And, um, we've got a single called Brain Dead, uh, Survival Skills, uh, coming out on In the Red, um, in, um, LA. So, to go inside with that and then we've got another single for next year on in the red so it's kind of i figured out how to do it with um how to bring a band back from the dead and get away get get around re- having to record that album that everybody's going to say when are you going to do your album and then when they, you do it and deliver it it says oh, i like their old stuff better <laughs> so <laughs> we'll just do singles sounds good it sounds like a good plan. get them by the the general public and they'll Exciting times ahead. That's the exciting times ahead. But uh, um, yeah, that's the, the, the immediate um, present is what I'm concerned with now. Mm. So, um, and that's kind of taken up quite a bit of um, headspace. But uh, I'm quite, I'm, 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 you know, I've got got lots of it. Yeah, for, for hoops. Yeah, fantastic. So we've been chatting with uh, Kim Salmon all about the I Get Up Again, the benefit for Brian Hooper. Benefit um, this coming Friday night. It's at the Prince Band Room. Absolutely amazing lineup. Beast of Bourbon, Kim Salmon, and the New Scientists are playing. Gareth Lydiard, Adelita, Mick Harvey, Rosie Westbrook, and now with added Six Foot Hick as well. So it's going to be a really amazing show down there in St Kilda this coming Friday. Tickets are around the mark of $56. You can get them via the Prince Band Room website. And there's also a GoFundMe page to donate um, to Brian if you can't manage to get along to that particular gig to help him out in this difficult time. Kim, thanks so much for coming in on Triple R and uh, have a great time down there Friday. Hope it goes well and you're not on too late. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks, Kim. And often when we hear about severe weather events, um, reports date back to when records began. And while weather records are critical for understanding Australia's climate, much of the official observation data dates back just 100-odd years to 1910, which means other sources are needed for weather and climate information that goes back to European colonisation and beyond. Uh, gathering this data is something that has occupied Dr Joelle Gerges for several years. She's pulled 
together an impressive book. Uh, it's called The Sunburnt Country, The History and Future of Climate Change in Australia. And uh, welcome to Triple R, Joelle. Good morning. And I suppose we should ask what got you going on this enormous task. You are a climate scientist and writer, so it makes sense you've written a book about climate, um, climate change. But um, what uh, sort of kicked you off on putting this jigsaw together? Well, I guess I've always had an interest in the natural world and I wanted to understand how long droughts had been affecting Australia. And to my surprise, really, we only had about 100 years' worth of record. And I thought, surely we can do better than this. And so that sort of set me off on a bit of a quest, really, to try and piece together our climate history. And so your book really articulates how difficult the task is of, of understanding that the climate in, in many years, decades, centuries gone by. What sort of sources um, did you begin to, to draw on in, in piecing this together? Well, we used a range of sources, starting from things like early colonial diaries, early newspapers, government records, farm records, and even artworks as well. Um, because there's actually a lot of information that's held within these historical sources that as scientists, we weren't really used to seeing this kind of information because we're not often looking in libraries and archives. Um, but it turns out there's actually an incredible amount of information we can use. And also records from the natural world, so things like tree rings, corals and ice cores. And when you put all that information together, you really are in a terrific position to try and piece together um, our past. And I suppose a lot of um, the, the information that you've used are kind of based on extreme weather events. How do you kind of smooth out the extremes? Like I suppose people aren't always painting pictures of a, a beautiful, calm, sun, sunny day. We see sort of more storms and floods and things like that. How do you kind of smooth it out, I suppose? That's a great question. So a lot of the historical records will talk about extremes. So exactly like you were saying with things like droughts or an extreme flood that might have come through the colony and wiped out their farm and things like that. But when you have records like tree rings and corals and ice cores, they are actually really good at reconstructing um, average climate conditions, not just the extremes. So when you put, put all these records together, that's the whole purpose of this, this book, was really to try and overcome some of the, um, the shortcomings of some of these different records. So when you put it all together, you can overcome some of those issues. And it was surprising as well in the course of your research and particularly the, the qualitative uh, qualitative research research you conducted that um, things had been kind of overlooked for many years. One example um, in the book relatively early on is William Dawes' diary, which you discovered um, weather records kind of just kind of hiding away in a page inside that book. How, how significant was, was that discovery to your research? Well, that was amazing, Dylan. I really couldn't believe that Australia's first weather record was actually held at the University of Melbourne's library, just a microfilm version of it. The original is actually kept at the Royal Society in London, which I also went and checked out. Um, but when I came across it, I couldn't believe it. It was um, four to six times daily measurements of things like temperature and air pressure and winds and remarks. And it had been sitting there for 220 years, untouched until I came along and I was able to analyse the record and I published and what? Are, yeah, and and I mean, are there other such gems out there? You think, particularly from from farms and the like, where people are keeping quite accurate data? Absolutely, I think we really are just starting to um, delve into this area. And and while Sunburnt Country brings together what we understand now um, from from all the research we've done, I think there's a lot of potential uh, to do even more work. And in particular, we recently came across a record from Perth 
which is um, it was the Swan River settlement, and they've got um, a really beautiful weather record that goes all the way back to 1830. So I've currently got two research assistants working with me on that project. Um, but there's also, as you say, a lot of information kept on um, on different properties throughout parts of um, regional Australia, and it would be really terrific to try and gather some more of those up. And I, I, um, in, I can imagine that you know farmers and and people that have come since colonisation are keeping these kinds of records. But what about um, prior to that, uh, with regards to Aboriginal um, information, oral history, uh, the, the way that stories kind of build into them, um, you know, times for certain plants to flower and that sort of thing? Were you able to draw on on that information? Absolutely. So I guess as scientists, we, we really like our quantitative, we like the numbers. Um, but there are an incredible um, amount of, there's an incredible amount of information that's held within oral history, which is passed down from generation to generation. So the arrival of things like uh, particular types of birds or the flowering of certain types of plants um, and, and animals. And so that's really important. And, and Indigenous people can actually recognise up to six different seasons in different parts of Australia. So the Bureau of Meteorology have done some excellent work working with uh, local communities to try and gather up that information because it gives a very different perspective on how we understand our landscape and our, and our climate. Because if you think about it, um, we have these four seasons that were transplanted from Europe, but Australia's a really big, really big continent with a very varied climate. So um, it doesn't always make sense. And, and so the Indigenous perspective is one of all of these subtleties and actually really reading the landscape, which is, which is something I think we can all learn from. I want to go to, to, I guess, some of the the research and findings um, that you've been part of over, I guess, recent years. And there's one part in in your book where you uh, discuss the the release of a report that you were part of that was uh, eventually released in 2016, um, in which it was found that temperatures experienced from 1985 in Australia and the surrounding region uh, between 1985 and the 30-year period um, after that was warmer than any period in the past 1,000 years. So much work went into this, yet... Um, when there was kind of a, a small error in the midst of that being published uh, for a journal, there were a whole range of sceptics who kind of um, jumped on you and, and called it out as not being legitimate research. I wonder how it feels to be a climate scientist and to deal with that sort of backlash when you're putting so much work into evidence-based research. It's really disappointing, just just to be honest, and it's it's very time-consuming. So our team received a lot of hate mail and freedom of information requests. So when the public can actually access your work email and all your data, um, and they just wanted to pour over it to try and find some evidence, if you like, that we were reverse engineering our results or looking to cherry pick to to come up with a contrived conclusion about the very unusual warming that we've seen in our region since around 1950. Um, and so it is it's really time consuming to deal with things like that. Um, and, and to me, it just seems like a case of shooting the messenger. And I, I mean, we've all heard um, David Caroli, who does an introduction to your book, talking about those sorts of pressures. And I suppose, you know, is that a, a dialogue now in, in the scientific community about how to continue doing your work, knowing that you are going to, I suppose, need to operate in that, at that political level in some shape or form? 
Yeah, that's also a really good question. I think really over the past decade or so, I've, I've really seen things change a lot. And there is a lot more support out there for, say, graduate students and, and, and other um, uh, researchers to get support and training about how to deal with these types of things and also media interviews and, and so on. Because if you think about it, a lot of a lot of scientists are pretty happy just writing their papers and crunching uh, the numbers and, and not really always uh, communicating outwards. But it is, it's vitally important important um, as we as we can see in Australia as we have such extreme weather and climate um, and so I think there is a lot more support um, and I was really lucky to have somebody like David Caroli as my mentor uh, because I, I guess um, in a situation like that you're a little bit off the map uh, and not too many people had dealt with um, such extreme um, hate if you like um, at the time and so it was, it was an interesting uh, exercise for me and um, I learned a lot from it um, but I guess one of the things I really learned was uh, that, that sometimes I mean as scientists we put information out there in good faith uh, to the best of our ability and but we're only we are human um, and and I think that sometimes um, you know, it's very easy to hide behind uh, a screen and, and just email people, but there are actually human beings on the other side of those uh, messages, and, and it's quite hurtful, um, and I don't think particularly helpful for the for the public discussion. Yeah, and it's quite a rare thing, really, for, for scientists a scientist's role to become essentially political in a way when what you're dealing with is is, is facts and, and evidence based mm. research. Absolutely, and I, I think. Because the situation is becoming increasingly alarming, I think a lot more people are feeling the need to try and communicate as clearly as we can about the state of affairs. And, I mean, the science is crystal clear. I mean, climate change is happening right now, and we're already committed to, to sort of dangerous levels of climate change. And Australia is actually the most vulnerable nation in, in the developed world. So we actually do have a lot to lose here in Australia. So I think it is a case of having to step up really and and um so it's why, while it's not necessarily the most natural thing for some scientists to do i do think it's really important uh, dr joelle gerges is with us her book sunburnt country the history and future of climate change in australia has been released this week and what is it uh joelle that makes australia so vulnerable well, Australia is actually the driest inhabited continent on the earth. So we sit in this high pressure band where most of the great deserts of the world are found. So we're already pretty precariously balanced when it comes to uh, water. And so around 70% of Australia is classified as either arid or semi-arid, meaning that most of the country actually receives less than 50 centimetres of rainfall each year, which is not a lot. So in a nutshell... Um, away from the eastern seaboard, Australia is mostly just a, a dry, flat desert with a wet coastal fringe, um, which houses all, all of our capital cities. And so we're sort of crammed in along the coast there. But that makes us, um, we're a very dry country. And we've signed up to the UN Paris Accord um, with the ambitious goal of limiting warding to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels by the end of the century, which um, seems on current projections to be quite an ambitious target. What would Australia look like once we kind of tip over that 1.5 or, or 2 degree warming? Well, if we continue along our current trajectory, by the end of the century, typically Australia warms by about four degrees. 
the inland areas are, are most hardest hit, but also the coast experiences significant warming. And so we're talking about things like an increase in um, extreme temperatures. So instead of seeing our temperatures in summertime uh, maybe hitting the 40-degree mark, we can actually see it soaring past 50 degrees in places like Sydney and Melbourne into the future, uh, an extension of the um, fire season, um, and, and a range of other things, including an increase in sea level, uh, which has a really big impact in a country like Australia, where 85% of our population actually lives on the coast. Uh, and there's just a range of other things as well in terms of the way that our rainfall uh, operates. So when we have a, a warming planet, uh, there's more evaporation, which means that there's more moisture available in the atmosphere to fall as torrential deluges when it does finally rain. So we, we have this sort of paradox of, of drier droughts. And then when it does rain, it actually can be really extreme rainfall where instead of it, instead of the rain being able to infiltrate in and, um, and top up aquifers, it can actually just wash away topsoil and lead to flash flooding. And that's not helpful for farmers either. So that's a very difficult thing for a lot of societies um, and a lot of people to deal with because we go from one extreme to the next. And, and, and financially, that's really difficult. But also psychologically, that's really difficult to bounce back from sort of back to back uh, extremes and, and that sort of um, financial pressure. And in the book, you, you deal with, um, I guess, some of the, the common uh, charges of, of sceptics that, you know, the, the warming we're seeing at the moment is just due to kind of natural variations in, in the climate, as we've seen throughout the Earth's history. And you um, talk about that in the context of, of Australia over the past couple of hundred years. But um, from a scientific standpoint, how do you kind of delineate that natural variation in the climate, climate change from what's induced by humans? That's a really good question. There's sort of two parts, and I'll start with the beginning part, which was really about um, how do we understand if it's natural variability or not. Um, the book actually does cover uh, uh, millions of years as well, so I do talk about those natural cycles of, of ice ages and warm periods that we've experienced. So this is background um, variability that we see in, in, in the system. But, but since the Industrial Revolution, where we've actually burnt a lot of fossil fuels to support human activity and also cleared the land, which um, takes away trees, which soaks up excess uh, carbon from the atmosphere, um, we've actually seen a really rapid warming since around 1850, and in particular since, since 1950. So the, the global warming we've experienced since the Industrial Revolution is actually about eight and a half times faster than the average rate of warming coming out of the last ice age around 18,000 years ago. So what we're talking about is the rate and the magnitude of these changes, which is really important. And the other really important thing I think people forget, so we all understand that, that our, our climate varies, that there's, there's no dispute about that. And we have been through um, climatic changes before. But the other main thing that's different, that is different is that the world's population now stands at 7.6 billion people with over 80 million people added every single year so we're now there's a lot of us on the planet and we're living in uh, increasingly more complex lifestyles and so when you think about the last ice age of maybe four to five million people are thought to have lived um on earth in these really low-tech sort of nomadic tribal groups but that's the equivalent of a population smaller than sydney spread out throughout the whole globe 
And so I think this is what we're talking about, is that um, human society's vulnerability to climate change is very, very different to anything we've seen in the past. It's, we, we, it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, and I do, um, I think I do actually talk about that in the book because I think sometimes people think, oh, well, the Earth has been through it before. And indeed, we have been through changes, but what we are seeing now is that human activity is actually accelerating those natural rates of change and, it is imp- and why it's important is because we are now, um, there's a lot of people on the planet and, and we want to live safe lifestyles and have um, an ability to earn a living and, and have a safe future. And in this, you have kind of mixed, I suppose, scientific um, data and, and evidence with kind of humanities, I suppose, and art. And as you say, you've drawn from diaries and paintings. Do you think we'll be drawing from um, diaries and paintings of today looking forward? Or do you think um, that scientific kind of data points are really going to be what we rely on to tell this story to the future, Joel? That's, a, again, a really terrific question. I think um, there's a couple of different answers to that. I, I think, firstly, looking back at the past is, is really important um, to look through things like diaries because we get a human account. And so while um, right now, as, as climate scientists, we're really interested in monitoring the, 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 the current weather and climate, which is really important, um, the thing from the past, uh, the, the, the idea with, with the historical record is that we get a sense of our past vulnerability to changes and also areas that might have been um, impacted in the past. And I think that gives us a really nice look at um, something that you actually can't get from the numbers. And so I think they're really complementary. And, and that's why with this project um, that, that um, I led, which, which drew together a lot of this information that um, appears in my book, Trumburn Country, I, I think um, the beauty of it is, is that it's not just about the science. You don't have to be a scientist to understand this book as well. I just want to say that for anyone that's potentially panicking about reading a book about <laughs> it's climate very, It's very readable. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but it's also that there are human stories. And so I think it is really important to not just tell a scientific story, but it's also important to tell a human story. And I hope I've done that in the book. Yeah, the book is very illuminating. As someone who's not a scientist and doesn't have a scientific background, um, I, I learned a lot while also, um, you know, kind of already knowing that the dire straits we're in uh, with regard to, to climate change and the, the rate of warming we're experiencing around the world. But it feels like we're at kind of a, a very much a, a key moment in time currently we've got you know technological innovation has meant we we have renewable energy that we can rely on and and given the uh, political nous and and commitment we can in, invest in that yet still there's uh climate science is politicized and and governments around the world are dragging their feet how optimistic are you that we will get this right and and start to really tackle this issue head on well, I think the, one of the most surprising elements of researching and writing this book was that it, it dawned on me that, the, that, that all the technology we need to, to limit the, the dangerous level of climate change that we'll experience, it already exists. So there is actually a clean energy revolution already happening all over the world and even here in Australia. And, um, for example, the renewable sector in our country already contributes nearly double the number of jobs generated by the local coal mining industry. And I think that's something that we don't often hear. And another thing is that Australia is actually one of the sunniest continents on Earth, but only 3% of our electricity is generated by solar power, which is outrageous if you think about it. I mean, this is common sense. I don't think it's anything beyond that. So I think all the technology already exists. And I think that our politicians will be led by the way that we vote. And in the book, 
at the end, I talk about what we can do. And I hope not in just a warm and fuzzy kind of way, but in a really practical way, is that Australia actually has a long history of um, taking a stand for environmental and social justice. And this is very much the time to have your voice heard. So how, how you vote on a local, state and federal at federal levels is really important. And also putting your money where your mouth is because, um, you know, you can choose how you power your home and, and all that sort of stuff. So I, I do talk about that in the book. But at the end of the day, politicians need to listen to us, the voters. And I think that we do have a lot of power, but if people are disengaged and they think, oh, it's just too complicated or, you know, not my problem, I think I'm hoping that with the book that people realise that this is actually happening on our watch right now. Um, and, and I think that we actually have a lot more power than we realise. And, and I think there is this um, momentum that's underway and I think that's reflected in the, the, the sign-up of, of so many nations um, at the United, for the United Nations Paris Agreement. And so there really is a concerted effort to really turn this around. And I think we can do it, but we've got to move fast. Well, it's good to hear you're still optimistic and uh, thank you so much for joining us on Triple R today. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.